Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, we need to take a few moments in prayer to make sure that we are Uh, prepare to study God's Word, to focus on what the Holy Spirit has to teach us this morning. Scripture says that when we sin, we break fellowship with God. We grieve the Holy Spirit. At that point, the ongoing growth ministry of the Holy Spirit is uh, stopped, ceases, shut down for until we recover fellowship with God. Scripture says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when we confess our sins in the privacy of our priesthood to God the Father at that instant, we're cleansed, we're forgiven of all wrongdoing, and fellowship is restored. Forward momentum in the the, uh, spiritual life is then restored. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship with the Lord. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed grateful that we have this opportunity and privilege to come together this morning to study your word. Your word explains to us the nature of reality. It's on the basis of your word that we are able to think accurately about our lives, to think accurately about uh, the circumstances and situations around us. It's on the basis of your word that we come to understand who you are and how we have a relationship with you. It's on on the basis of your word that we learn to think in light of the reality that you have created. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that we might be able to concentrate and focus on what you have revealed to us, and we pray that God the Holy Spirit would make clear to us the areas in our own lives where we need to make application. For above all, we need to orient our thinking to your thinking, that we may live as believers in this world, to honor and glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We've been studying as part of our study of Revelation the whole concept of the angelic conflict or spiritual warfare. 
when you are born into this world, you are part of a cosmic conflict that began in eternity past, began when Satan first uh, decided to uh, exalt himself above God and above all of God's creation. With that act of arrogance, Lucifer expressed his antagonism to God, his desire to live independently of God and to, in uh, contrast to everything God had revealed to the angelic creation, he was going to try to be his own God and to rule the angels and rule the creation as it existed at that time. As I've pointed out in the past several weeks, it's those two elements, his uh, independence of God or autonomy and his hostility or antagonism to God that are the basic core elements of satanic thought that the creature thinks that he can live independently of the Creator. And once the creature thinks that he can live independently of the Creator, he begins to develop his own understanding of life, of creation, of everything within creation in antagonism to God. And once you begin to live independently of God, it will not be long before you become antagonistic to God. And so this is, works itself out throughout human history as what the Bible calls worldliness. The last few weeks we've talked about the way Satan influences the human race. And one of the primary ways in which he influences the human race is through this concept developed in the New Testament called worldliness. There are three enemies in the Christian life. The first is the devil. The second is the flesh, which is the sin nature that every single human being possesses from the moment of birth. And even after salvation, you still have this traitor inside you that has an affinity for everything Satan hopes to accomplish. However, in regeneration, you are freed from the tyranny, the power of the sin nature, according to Romans chapter 6. And on the basis of the Word of God and the Spirit of God, we are able to free ourselves from that dominion, that dominion of the sin nature. We are able to understand the nature of reality as God has defined it in his word, and then we are able to live in accordance with what God has said. But as part of this, we need to understand how the cosmic system works. For the word that is translated world most of the time in the New Testament is the Greek word cosmos. And so we begin our study this morning by taking a look at this important word cosmos. Cosmos in the negative sense, I'll explain that in just a minute, in the negative sense describes the entire arrangement and system of thinking arrayed against God. It has as its primary meaning order, uh, arrangement, and adornment. Uh, one meaning of the world cosmos has to do with the inhabited world. That is the meaning in passages such as John 3.16, for God so loved the world, that is the inhabited planet. But in many other passages, the concept of world has to do with the thinking of those who inhabit the planet over against 
are in contrast to the thinking of God. We'll run into this a lot as we get into the tribulation period and described in the book of Revelation from Revelation 4 to 19. We'll run into a technical term called the earth dwellers. And the earth dwellers are those who are opposed to God and who constantly resist all of the uh, grace outreaches of God during the tribulation period. And the more judgment comes, rather than turning to God in true repentance or change, they continue to shake their fist against God and intensify their own uh, rejection of God. So this is part of their thinking, as I pointed out in the last couple of weeks in James chapter uh, 3, verses 13 through 15, the thinking of the world is described as the wisdom of the world in that passage and is described as being earthly, natural, and demonic. All the systems of human thought that are independent of God reflect these basic characteristics of satanic thought. Autonomy from God that we can somehow make meaning of life, somehow make life work, somehow organize our our marriages, our societies, everything that we do in such a way that by excluding God, we can find meaning, purpose, stability, and happiness. So this is all part of this concept of the, uh, of the cosmos. In the Old Testament, the idea of order and arrangement is foundational to the creation described in Genesis chapter 1. It's very clear from the way the creation is described that there is a plan, that there is order, that there is progression. In the first uh, three days of creation, you see various habitats uh, created and stabilized. And then in the second uh, period of three days, day four, five, and six, you see the inhabitants of those spheres uh, being created. There is order and arrangement. There is beauty. God, in his thinking, uh, is the ultimate standard of beauty, for it is God who creates beauty. And only from a biblical standpoint can we come to a true understanding and create a true theology of beauty and uh, aesthetics. This is something that uh, in the history of Christianity is one of the weakest areas in the development of any kind of biblical thought. In contrast to what God has created in terms of a universe that is has perfect order, balance, and arrangement, we have the introduction of chaos and disorder. This occurs once Lucifer falls and once man falls in the restored creation of Genesis 1, then you have the introduction of chaos. Uh, chaos is the opposite of cosmos. Cosmos has that order, that idea of balance and arrangement. But the word cosmos is never used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in the same sense that it's used under the development in the New Testament. The New, Tele- New Testament develops this idea that cosmos represents Satan's attempts to bring order and beauty out of the chaos that was introduced by sin. His goal is to show that he can be God, and in order to do that, he has to bring about stability, order, and beauty within creation apart from God. And so these various systems that all come under the category of cosmic thinking 
are all oriented to trying to bring order, stability, and beauty out of a world that is uh, chaotic as a result of sin. So its very core, it's going to want to deny the concept of sin. It's going to want to deny the concept of depravity, the concepts of rebellion as associated with the satanic fall. So when we think about the word cosmos, at the very core of its meaning, it has the idea of order, it has the idea of adornment, it brings out the aspect of something that is attractive and beautiful, so that when this is applied to the false systems of thinking developed in Satan's world, one thing we see is that they have an attractiveness, they have an appeal, they have a beauty that has an affinity to the sin nature. This is one reason it's so important to understand this concept of worldliness in your generation, whoever you are and wherever you live and whenever you live, you are surrounded by a form of cosmic thinking. And that form of cosmic thinking has a direct affinity to your sin nature. And when we are living apart from God, then our sin nature just sort of latches on to those values in the cosmic system of our day and uses those to rationalize, justify, and strengthen the autonomy of the sin nature. It often leaves us blinded to the influence of our own sin nature. It is through the cosmic system, I believe, that Satan primarily blinds the minds of unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 4.4, Satan is blinding unbelievers to the truth of the gospel, and he does that through appealing to the sin nature through these various uh, systems that seem to make life work apart, apart from God. So when we look at this word cosmos, it picks up certain nuances that are related to the order of the universe, related to the world of ideas. It also picks up uh, certain nuances related to values in some contexts and also to the uh, concepts of beauty and aesthetics. So it's a, a word that does a lot of work. It has a lot of various facets to it depending on uh, the concept or the context. Now, in theology, the word cosmos, and I usually spell it with a K to reflect the Greek, the word cosmos has to do with all systems of thought that are developed in independence of God. Uh, Lewis Berry Chafer, who was the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, has an excellent section in his systematic theology on the cosmos, and he writes about it that the cosmos is a vast order or system that Satan has promoted which conforms to his ideals, aims, and methods. I want to stop there a minute because we live in a world today that often refuses to think about methods. As long as the results are okay, as long as we produce a large church, as long as we have uh, fill a stadium with converts, as long as people seem to grow closer to whatever they call God, then we want to give that the stamp of approval. Uh, however, we must remember that a right thing done in a wrong way is still wrong. That method is as important as what we are trying to do and what we are trying to accomplish. And method often reflects a, a viewpoint that is actually antagonistic 
to biblical Christianity so that we can be engaged in evangelism, we can be engaged in doing church, we can be engaged in worship, and we can do it in such a way that conforms to the methods of the world. And what we've done is we've compromised our message and we've compromised the truth by how we are going about the Christian life so that a right thing done in a wrong way is just as wrong as a wrong thing done in a wrong way. So Satan promotes these systems of thought, and they appear to work. He wouldn't have much success if they didn't appear to work. So there is a lot that we can go to to validate all these different systems. But at the core, they operate on these these twin supports of autonomy and antagonism. Well, Chafer goes on to say, it is civilization. Notice that word. It is civilization. He brings into his definition the idea that world, worldliness or cosmic thinking, as it's described in the Bible, is related to culture, and uh, it expresses itself through the various different cultures that are developed in different civilizations down through history. It is civilization now functioning apart from God. Every civilization down through history, no matter how much at some point it may borrow from biblical standards and biblical values, because every civilization is dominated by fallen men, fallen mankind, there's always large elements of those systems of civilization that are non-biblical. It's always a, a synthesis. And these civilizations always will be doomed because they are based on false concepts and operate through the leadership of fallen men. It is civilization now functioning apart from God. That's autonomy. A civilization in which none of its promoters really expect God to share. You often find uh, at this time of years we approach an election, people giving lip service to religious themes and to, to God, but when you take a look at their thinking, it is rarely uh, thinking that is built on any kind of self-conscious thought on biblical foundation. The civilization which none of its promoters really expect God to share who assign to God no consideration in respect to their projects, nor do they ascribe any causativity to him. This system, Chafer goes on to say, embraces its godless governments, conflicts, armaments, jealousies, its education, culture, religions of morality and pride. It is that sphere in which man lives. It's what he sees. It's what he employs. To the uncounted multitude, it's all they ever know so long as they live on this earth. It's properly styled the satanic system, which phrases in many instances a justified interpretation of the so meaningful word cosmos. It is literally a cosmos diabolicus. It is ultimately energized by Satan so that we have man born into the domain of Satan. As we saw in the beginning of this series, Satan is called the god of this age, the prince and the power of this air, uh, the ruler of this age. All of these terms relate to his dominion over human history at this point in time. 
Now, a synonym that comes into play here that is often translated world is the Greek word ion. In this sense, it relates to what Germans describe as zeitgeist. Ion is the word for age, so it has a temporal aspect, whereas cosmos looks more at the order, at, in some sense, the physicality of the, uh, of the concept. Ion looks at its, the time period, the temporal dimension of this. And the Germans coined a word in the 19th century called zeitgeist, meaning the spirit of the times, the thinking of the times, the general intellectual, moral, cultural, and cultural climate of an era. So that any particular time, you just sort of take out your scalpel and you take a slice of any nation, any civilization, any particular time, you will see that there are certain ideas, certain concepts, certain values that are indicative of the thinking of most of the people in that culture and that civilization at that particular time. And that is the idea in the word uh, zeitgeist. Another German word that describes the same thing is the word uh, Weltanschauung, which comes over into English as world view. It has to do with that basic set of beliefs that people hold that enable them to organize the data, the information in the world. That is its uh, core definition. Now, when we come to Romans 12.2, we read a familiar passage here, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, this word world in verse 2 is not cosmos but ion. It has that idea of the thinking of the times, the thinking of the times. If we look at our world today, we live in a transition period. Uh, some people talk about the fact that we are emerging from modernism into postmodernism. And so that term emerging in that context has been applied to a new heretical direction of the church called the emergent church movement. That's where that comes from, in case you've heard the term and, and wonder about it. It's talking about how we need to have a new concept of church, new concept of worship, uh, new message, because we now live in uh, postmodern times and we have emerged from modern times. So we live in a culture today that is dominated by two ideas. One is uh, modernism, and the other is uh, postmodernism. Postmodernism is ultimately based on pure relativism, whereas modernism is based on a very optimistic view that man on his own can answer all the questions of life and bring in uh, a utopic society simply on the basis of his own ability. Both systems uh, reject the concept of man as a creature created by God in uh, and, and in a fallen state. So this term ion picks up the uh, temporal aspect, that is the belief system of the age. So we're not to be conformed to the belief system of the age in which we live, the culture around us. There is a contrast between how a believer thinks for this concept of ion is going to bring in the idea 
of thought, not, not emotion, not feeling, but it has to do with how you think. And as I've pointed out so many times, it's difficult enough for most people to think, but it's even harder for people to think about how they think. And yet, that is part of what we're called upon to do as believers in the Christian life, is we are born in a home. You may have been born in a Christian home. You may have been born in a home of unbelievers, atheists. You may have been born in a home dominated by some other world religion or world philosophy. But as you grew up, you were also taught various things about the nature of reality. You heard those from your peers. You heard those from professors in school, whether you're teachers in elementary school or uh, professors in university. But you heard all kinds of ideas. And as you grew up as an individual, you began to make choices as to what you uh, were going to think and believe about the nature of reality, the nature of the world around you. And so you formed your own concept of what life was all about. And into that, uh, that concept, you included a number of different, different factors. Now, if you are not a Christian, then whatever your thinking is composed of, it is not based on truth. Truth as the Bible defines it, absolute truth. It may have a lot of elements of borrowed capital, as it were, where you have uh, terminology that's often used is like the Jews when they left Egypt and they spoiled the Egyptians. Uh, You have uh, actually that wealth didn't belong to Egypt to begin with. It was the wealth that had been earned through the slave labor of of Israel. They weren't robbing them. They were taking taking their wages for 400 years of slavery. And um, that's what happens with unbelievers is they can't live in God's world in a consistently anti-God philosophy of life because at some point it doesn't work. So ultimately they have to go over into Christianity and borrow love, borrow compassion, borrow righteous concepts of righteousness or law because otherwise they can't live and their system will ultimately fall apart into complete and total uh, chaos. So even unbelievers have certain elements of truth, lowercase truth, in their system. Sometimes we call this establishment truth. Sometimes we call it uh, creation truth. Sometimes we use different terminology. But there's basically morals and ethics that even unbelievers can recognize apart from any uh, any um, revelation from God in order to make life work. But once you become a Christian, once you become a believer, suddenly now you can have a concept of absolute truth that is grounded in a an autonomous creator, the triune God, not just any creator, but a creator that is composed of three eternal co-equal persons. And so that becomes ultimate truth, and ultimate truth is oriented to the thinking of that creator. So once again, we're back to this concept of thought. And so as Paul says in Romans 12.2, we're not to be conformed to the thinking of the world, which ultimately grounds all of its thought on some element of creation. 
the thinking of the believer is grounded upon the autonomous thinking, the autonomous revelation of the Creator God. So as we be, once we become a believer, we can have our thinking changed or transformed. And this is the whole process of the Christian life. It is fundamentally a process of changing how we think. And the trouble is that once we get saved, and even if we're saved at a young age, we still uh, imbibe a lot of cosmic values as we grow older until we begin to learn enough about the Bible, learn enough doctrine to really be able to understand these things. It takes time to grow and to change and to have our have our thinking transformed, but the only thing that can do it is a consistent, detailed study of the whole counsel of God. This is one of the areas which we fall so short in today is that we don't have churches or pastors or pulpits that teach the whole realm of doctrine, that teach the whole counsel of God. They, they just sort of skip around on the surface pick up ideas here and there, put them together in a 20- or 30-minute homily on Sunday morning, and yet this is completely insufficient to transform the thinking of people who are virtually brainwashed day in and day out by the thought systems of the culture around them. We don't realize how much we are bombarded with these ideas. They come across in film, television shows, art, music, the periodicals you read, uh, when you read all those uh, gossip articles in People magazine, you know, it all co- comes across there. Just the way in which the news is packaged and formulated uh, for you also conveys certain values and certain ideas. And unless you have an objective external vantage point by which you can evaluate these things, then we become influenced by them and we get sucked into their thinking. And this is the whole process of just learning as a believer to think a little uh, more objectively and critically about the world around you. And the only way we can do that is by uh, having a thorough understanding of the Word of God, for that is the standard. That is what gives us that objective vantage point to understand these things. So we have to not be conformed to the world. Well, in some sense, then, to not be conformed to the world or the zeitgeist, the worldviews that surround you, you have to understand something about them. If you don't know what they are, you don't know how to avoid getting sucked into their, their thinking. Now, all of that's just based on an introduction to this whole concept based on the words that are used in the Scripture. That leads us, uh, the first point had to do with just the definition of cosmos. The second point had to do with the definition of ion or age. And that brings us to a third point, that cosmic thinking or the systems of thought that are devised in cultures are designed to enable mankind to explain life, to solve problems, to build civilization, so that involves everything related to law, politics, marriage, social life. All of these things uh, flow out of cosmic thinking, structure his relationships apart from God. That's the core concept is you're going to do everything, but you do it apart from God. So you can do a lot of things that have an affinity with the Bible, 
but because it's grounded on something that is independent of God, it has adopted a satanic form of thinking. Now, under my fourth point, I want to understand why we study these things. This is so important today. There are two basic reasons why it's important to study cosmic thinking. Two basic reasons. The first is for the purpose of evangelism. For the purpose of evangelism. We need to understand the thinking of those to whom we are communicating the gospel and to be able, in the process of explaining the gospel to them, able to juxtapose the gospel to false forms of thinking that characterize uh, this unbeliever's thought. When we do this, we are following a set biblical pattern. Now, it doesn't, I don't mean that every time you're going to witness or evangelize someone that you're going to get into some deep conversations related to these things. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Uh, not every time you find an example in the New Testament of Paul giving the gospel do you find him going into some of the more profound elements of, uh, uh, of Greek thought or pagan thought at the time. Other times you do. Uh, this is a pattern that you see, though, all the way through Scripture is that uh, the writers of Scripture clearly understand the thought forms of the cultures that are influencing the people to whom they are writing. Now, just think with me back to uh, the first chapter of Genesis. In the first chapter of Genesis, we see a creator God that is not a part of the cosmos, part of the universe, but he creates the universe. That is over against the, all of the pagan notions that somehow there were these gods that preexisted. They're material gods, and usually you have a scene where one god kills another god and then uses the body parts to make the heavens and the earth. So you have, as it were, in a mythological form, this uh, pre-existent uh, matter out of which the present material universe is made. So you have concepts of the etern eternality of matter and eternality of the universe. You go through Genesis 1 from uh, point to point, from day to day, and it's been pointed out by numerous scholars that almost everything said in Genesis 1 is a direct counterpoint to the belief system of the Canaanites who were the culture the Jews were going to be exposed to once they went into the Promised Land. So they were taught about God's creation, but not in isolation. Words, terms, concepts were used that had specific connotations that were in contrast to the uh, thought forms, the cosmology of the Canaanites. We go a little further down through Scripture and we come to the uh, ten plagues on the Egyptians in Exodus. And what those plagues show is that God has a sense of humor when it comes to the false religious system of the Egyptians because he's going to uh, use these plagues to show that uh, the whole Egyptian uh, pantheon, the whole Egyptian cosmogony is incapable of handling the issues of life. For example, in the first plague, when the Nile is turned to blood, this is in direct contrast to the Egyptian god uh, Hapi, also called Apis, 
who was the guardian of the Nile. So it's an assault on the God who guarded the Nile. The uh, frogs, the plague of frogs, is a, in direct contrast to the Egyptian god Hecate, who was uh, usually pictured with a frog's head. Then you had uh, the gnats that came out of the desert, which is uh, an, a polemic against Seth, the god of the desert. You had uh, flies, and there was uh, one god, Eustix, who was represented by the flies. So you get the idea. Each of these plagues used something out of Egyptian culture and turned it against the Egyptians to show that the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was the creator God who was over and above uh, any of the gods or goddesses that uh, autonomous man uh, could invent. And uh, this goes all the way through the various ten plagues. You see the same kind of thing when uh, Elijah is on Mount Carmel. And you think about the things related to the ministry of Elijah in uh, 1 Kings 17.1. He comes to uh, Ahab and he announces that there's going to be a drought and that there will be a drought until uh, he, Elijah, decides that it will rain. Now, this is set over against the fact that Ahab has married Jezebel. Jezebel is a Phoenician whose father is the high priest of Baal worship in uh, what we call Lebanon or ancient Phoenicia, and she has introduced uh, Baalism and the fertility worship into the northern kingdom of Israel. Baal is the storm god, the god of rain. So the fact that they are now worshiping in the northern kingdom, they're worshiping Baal, yet it is Elijah who says, uh, by virtue of my relationship with Yahweh, who promises part of discipline, Deuteronomy upon people, that there would not be rain, uh, I'm going to stop the rain, see if your God can change anything. And so there's no change, and three and a half years goes by, and there's no rain, and the people are beginning to panic, and uh, God finally brings, Ahab, I mean, brings Elijah out of hiding, brings him to Mount Carmel, where he has this uh, showdown at Mount Carmel with the priests of Baal and the priests of the Asherah. There's about 700 priests there, and he challenges them to a duel and says, you get your God to uh, burn up this sacrifice. Of course, he would bring lightning from heaven. Baal is the storm god, the god of thunder, the god of lightning. And so he has them come up and, and build a, an altar, and all day long they cry to Baal to uh, destroy or to come down and, and light the altar on fire. Nothing happens. And Elijah taunts them. For those of you who've been influenced by the politically correct worldview of our culture, where you think that that's so intolerant, you need to rethink your concept of toleration. Because here you have Elijah who is not only intolerant of the false religion, he ridicules it to their face. He's not out of fellowship in doing so. He is challenging them. They're God's impotent. He can't do anything. How foolish of man to believe in a false god like this. And so towards the end of the day, he has his altar built. He covers it with water, fills the trench around it with water. Everything is just soaked through. He just simply asks God to uh, burn up the sacrifice, and God sends fire from heaven, and the whole altar just uh, just about vaporized on the spot. 
And so he demonstrates the power of God over against the false systems, the false thinking of man. You see this all the way down into the New Testament. You go to passages like Acts 14, Acts 17, when Paul is talking to those coming out of a Greek culture, he displays a familiarity with their philosophers, the Stoics, the Epicureans. He understands their religious thought, and he is juxtaposing the truth of Scripture against their false systems. Now, what's interesting is when Paul is evangelizing a Jewish audience, he, he does things differently. When he goes to the Greeks, he starts with the, to establish the concept of God as the creator God who created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. He doesn't have to do that with the Jews. They already understand that. And so his starting point with them is something different. You don't evangelize people the same way all the time because people come from different backgrounds, different uh, worldviews, different concepts. And so you have to, just as the writers of Scripture did, have an understanding of their framework so that you can, through the power of the Holy Spirit, make the gospel as clear as you can as you interact with them. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 3.15. He says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Set him apart in your thinking. The word heart in Scripture often has the nuance of thinking. It, it, it focuses on that core part of, of the person, usually the soul, but often it focuses on the thinking part of the soul. Sanctify or set apart the Lord God in your hearts, in your, the thinking part of your soul, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now, the reason I uh, put the nuance of thinking on hearts is because everything else in the passage is related to reason and thought. Uh, you're to give a defense and this is the Greek word apologia, from which we get our word apology, which is bad because we're not apologizing for Christianity. Apologia is just giving a legal, rational defense. It is answering the question, why? You see, the teaching of doctrine has two sides. We firmly believe that the Bible is rational, unlike the wife of our vice president who was interviewed uh, the other night on uh, Fox News, and she was asked a question about um, uh, presidential candidate Mitt Romney, who is a who is a Mormon, because apparently uh, the interview said that uh, Lynn Cheney had uh, some members of her family who were who were Mormons, and so she was asked the question, "Well, what do you think about this religious issue?" And she really displayed her stupidity and her arrogance against. Uh, against truth and against scripture. She said, well, you have to understand that religion is not supposed to be evaluated. We don't take our left brain out and evaluate and look at religion. Religion is not supposed to be rational. We don't evaluate it on the basis of reason. It's just something people believe. See, that is pure worldliness in our generation. It's the idea that that truth isn't something you can evaluate. 
and that you can think about. And that runs completely contrary to what the Bible teaches about truth. Is it something to be thought about? It's something to be meditated on. It's something to be contemplated on. We have to, as we've seen this morning, change the way we think, not change the way we emote or the way we feel. And that ultimately it is related to to thought. So we are to give a rational defense, a thought-out answer. Somebody in the teaching of, of doctrine, doctrine has two sides, as I, as I started to say. The one side is what you believe. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what the Bible teaches as truth. The other side of the coin is to answer the question, why? Because eventually you will ask the question, why should I believe this? I've heard other pastors, other theologians say differently. So why should I believe you? If you're witnessing to somebody, they'll say, why should I believe the claims of the Bible? Now, how you answer that question is important because you can answer it in a wrong way, which gives away the authority of the Bible. By If you appeal to autonomous reason or you appeal to autonomous, histor- autonomous historical experience, then what you're doing is saying that the truth of God is ultimately evaluated by uh, autonomous reason and autonomous experience. So it's how you answer is as important as what you answer, but we are to give a a defense, a rational, thought-out, logical answer. Now, that doesn't happen all the time. I've had people that I have witnessed to and that I have witnessed the witnessing to where they have been prepared. Who knows what has gone on before in their life, but when uh, someone sits down to explain the gospel to them, they have very few questions. They say, that makes uh, perfect sense to me, and they trust in Christ as their Savior. I have also observed and been involved in other situations where the witnessing, where giving the gospel to somebody is a long-term event that is stretched over maybe months to years to decades, where people have questions. And as you answer those questions, then they come to understand what the gospel is all about. And so it, it all depends. Not every situation is not the same. Not every person is the same. Not every person comes to uh, the gospel from the same uh, from the same vantage point. Uh, I know of a situation where I was. I'm usually very much against missionary dating, so we don't want to develop any uh, women's missionary dating societies. But I, I'm familiar with two or three cases. In recent years, because most of the men in our culture are so spiritually lame and pagan that the young ladies who grow up with being taught the word of God look around and go, how am I ever going to find a husband? Well, they start evangelizing. And I know of a, uh, I know of a couple of cases where uh, young ladies held their ground. They were not going to go out. They didn't even want to go have lunch with some guy who didn't even know who Jesus was, had an atheistic uh, concept of uh, everything, was a worshiper at the idol of, of Charles Darwin. And in this particular case, their initial dates for about the first uh, six months or so consisted of 
having conversations with her parents, who were very biblically informed, and going out on the Internet and reading various papers on the Institute for Creation Research website and the Answers in Genesis website. This young man, in this case, was so smitten with this girl that um, he just, just to be able to spend time with her, he went to church with her. And so he showed up at church every, every Sunday and sometimes in the middle of the week, and he had uh, conversations with me. He had conversations with Charlie Clough. And sometime after about a year, he decided that he wasn't going to be putting his brain in neutral to trust in Jesus Christ. And so he became a believer. But just to make sure that he wasn't doing this because of some girl or because he had been misled, he didn't tell anybody for about two months. And then he uh, made it known that he had trusted Christ as his Savior. And today he is a postcard, uh, poster boy of what doctrine can do in the life of, of an individual. And they are now married and they ha- are beginning their family. And it is a wonderful picture of, or from her testimony, of her unwillingness to vacillate on the standard that she wasn't going to get involved in any kind of relationship, even uh, going to lunch with an unbeliever, unless the focal point was going to be uh, the gospel and making sure that he understood what the what the real issues were in life. But that's that's a role of understanding uh, the thinking of the world, so that those questions can be answered in the framework of uh, of evangelism. Another reason that we come to understand cosmic thinking around us is because we've all grown up with it. Every one of us are influenced in ways beyond uh, what we would be comfortable, and if it were truly exposed to us, we would probably be shocked at how much our own thinking has been influenced by the cosmic thinking uh, around us. So the second reason we study worldliness or the cosmic system is to understand how we have been affected in our own thinking. Because if we are going to exchange the uh, cosmic ideas in our own souls with the eternal truths of God's word, then sometimes these are, are maybe close, close together. They may seem to be very similar ideas, and yet by studying the thinking of the culture, the civilization, uh, around us, the zeitgeist of our own uh, era, we come to understand the thoughts that have infected our own souls. Borrow this uh, slide from uh, Charlie Clough because it's so uh, illustrative. See, what happens is that mo- the, the black blob there is like an amoeba, and it represents the, the human viewpoint in all of our souls, that cosmic thinking. I sometimes refer to uh, cosmic thinking as human viewpoint or pagan thought. Um, what happens is there's a biblical truth is taught from the pulpit, and what happens almost in an unconscious way for most of us is we take that principle and we sort of uh, envelop it in our human viewpoint frame of reference, and it becomes reshaped and rethought and transformed almost instantaneously and rather than transforming or changing our thinking it just is uh shifted around and we stay in our own comfort zone 
And what happens is that because of the autonomy of the sin nature and the arrogance and hostility of the sin nature to truth, that if we're not careful, what we do is we reshape biblical truth into uh, our own frame of reference. James chapter 2, or James chapter 4 says, You adulteresses, and here it's talking about spiritual adultery, that is unfaithfulness toward God. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The Bible juxtaposes these two concepts, that you can think like the world or you can think biblically. You can't do both. They are mutually exclusive. And the challenge to every believer is to learn to think as God thinks. When you don't, what happens is it not only affects your own spiritual life, drags you down, you're no longer living on a on a view of life, a view of reality based on the Word of God, you're living your life on the basis of a pseudo-system, a false system. Sooner or later, it will come crashing down around you, and this happens in many different ways in our own culture. I know of a situation right now of a church in another state where uh, among the leadership of the church, there are a couple of men who are whose whose field of work is in the realm of science. They have uh, become very influenced by some of the thinking today related to old earth. Hugh Ross's view, if you're familiar with him, that the literal days of Genesis weren't literal days, but they just represent uh, time periods uh, over a long period of time and that earth is an old earth. So they've, they've compromised their thinking by absorbing elements of Darwinism into their thought system, and the pastor of the church has been there for many years. He is uh, believes in a uh, traditional young earth, a traditional view of Genesis, and this has brought about a split now that's developing in the church because there are those who don't want to deal with the impact of false forms of thinking such as Darwinism in their own thinking. There are other ways in which the church today is being subtly influenced by the world around us. We live in a world that is psychologized. And, in fact, one church historian has labeled the current post-World War II era in in American history as the therapeutic era because we focus on therapy as the solution to problems, not the Word of God. We also have the influence of feminism, and you've seen a number of denominations split over the last 20 years over the issue of ordination of women and women pastors, which is totally unbiblical. You also see denominations coming to loggerheads over gender confusion, the ordination of homosexuals. You also see the trends in many churches today where they base their whole methodology on marketing uh, surveys and trends, and they have adopted a business model for the local church rather than a ministry model for the local church. And the result of all of this is that it just uh, destroys the impact 
of biblical Christianity on the world around us. We are to be salt and light. That doesn't mean that we're to redeem the culture, but it does mean that we are to have uh, an impact on the culture. You can see at different times and different eras and different places where Christians have had a large influence on the thinking of the culture, and that has had a preservative impact on those cultures. But eventually we have to realize we're in the devil's world, and we're not supposed to be uh, polishing the brass on a sinking ship, as J. Vernon McGee used to say, because the culture is going to end. It is a pagan culture, and our job as believers is to be in the world but not of the world. We are not to think like the world thinks. That doesn't mean that we uh, distance ourselves like the Amish and some other groups. We sort of look askance at them and wonder what in the world's going on. But as I think about the Amish, what, what's at the core of their thinking is, is something that it was positive. And that is that, that they understood at the end of the 1700s and into the 1800s that the, that mo- the, the worldview that they had come out of was changing and modernism was coming in and they were rejecting that. And they didn't want to go into modernism. Now they identified, uh, the trappings of modernism with technology and some other things which was erroneous. But at the very core, what you see with groups like that is they sensed that there was a that there was a shift taking place, and they wanted to resist that thought shift in the cosmic system uh, around them. So as believers, though, we don't want to get caught up in misidentifying the issues as they did, but we don't want to become entrapped in the thinking of the, uh, of the culture, the civilization around us. We need to be set apart from that, recognizing that friendship with the world is hostility toward God, that Satan is the ruler of the cosmic system. The only solution is the truth of God's word. That is the only way that we come to understand uh, how to live and how to think is through a study, a consistent study of the word of God where we probe it in all of its depths. It's not something you just skim over the top, pick up a few ideas and go home and say, oh, I feel so good about church this morning, but where we're challenged to think more deeply and more profoundly about every area in our life as a result of what God's Word says so that we change the way we think and it changes the way we live because how we live flows from the thinking of the soul. So the only solution is the Word of God. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we have your word, for it tells us the nature of reality, that all that we see is created by you, and that you not only have provided us with a, with a sufficient revelation, but you've given us a sufficient salvation, that in your word you've told us that our basic problem is sin and that we can do nothing about it, but in your grace you did everything about it. You sent your son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins that we might have eternal life by simply trusting in him. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain about their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. 
If you put your trust in Jesus Christ, then you have eternal salvation. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. There is no doubt about it. If you put your faith alone in Christ alone, then the result is salvation. You can never lose it. Uh, It will never be taken from you. It was never based on who you are, what you've done to begin with. It's based exclusively on who Jesus Christ is and what he did for us on the cross. Father, we pray that you challenge each of us with the things that we study today to be willing to face the elements of cosmic thinking that has influenced our own thought, that we may be able to exchange the error for the truth of your word, and that we may, under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, continue to grow and mature uh, as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.